Welcome to Between the Vines. I'm Kevin Martin. I'm here with Jennifer Phillips Russo. Uh, this week we are right in our immediate post-bloom period, uh, but we've pretty much covered all that for you, I think, if you've looked at some of our resources over the last couple of months, including the podcast. Uh, so we've decided today to bring you something a little bit different. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to introduce what we're, what we're going to share with everybody today? Absolutely. Thank you. So we held one of our virtual coffee pots on June 8th and had a special guest speaker who is Mary Centrella. She is the director of Cornell's Pesticide Safety Equipment Program. Correct? I always get the acronym incorrect, but it's PSEP. So Pesticide Safety Equipment. (laughs) (laughs) And she actually gave for credit for core credits a talk on tank mixing compatibility. So today, instead of Kevin and I talking back and forth about what's going on, we thought that since it is the immediate post-bloom, this could be appropriate for you. She's going to, we're going to play for you the audio of her slideshow that she gave live on Zoom and showed slides. So if you are curious to what she is talking about, please visit our website. We will have that resource posted for you if you want to watch it. Yes, as always, this will be available in video and audio formatting. But like Jen said, this one might be a little bit better to watch if you do get a chance to watch it on video. Um, The only one thing I would take away from this that, you know, give you a really good reason to listen is that she has some very good information specific to um, to Concords, even though I'm not sure if she did that intentionally or not, because she obviously works across all markets and industries. And when it comes to tank mixing, especially in the post-bloom period, I think you guys take a little bit of risk, even if you don't maybe necessarily know that, because a lot of times it does work out, even though it won't necessarily always work out. Um, so so I, I thought that this would be a good thing to share with everybody else who um, who happened to miss the coffee pot meeting, because it is, you know, it's at night, it's right after dinner or during dinner, depending on when you, when you do your thing. And if you're joining us in person, maybe you missed this virtual one. So... I wanted to give you a chance to listen or or watch uh, in, in your at your leisure. So thanks a lot for joining us this week. We will be back next week. Have a great week, everyone. All right. Well, great. Um, thank you for the introduction. And I'm really glad I'm able to talk today. I know that um, things are probably starting up in the, you know, in the vineyards. So I'm sure it's kind of a crazy time, but uh, glad you all came. Uh, to see the talk. And, you know, I'm just going to introduce my program a little bit first, and then we'll get into how to avoid pesticide incompatibility. Uh, So I'm the director and also an educator with the Cornell Cooperative Extension Pesticide Safety Education Program. And that's CCEP set. Kevin's right that we were formerly PMEP. So we had that name change and the safety aspect of it is just, you know, fits a little bit more with what we do. So we've been a nationally recognized leader in pesticide safety education for over 40 years, and we provide training in the proper use and handling of pesticides and promote pesticide safety to applicators and consumers, uh, mostly in New York State. And we also serve as a resource of objective information about pesticides, so feel free to reach out um, to us. And just some of the things you might be familiar with that we do, we, we write and publish the applicator certification manuals for the state, uh, and some of these we sell to other states as well, so your, your state might use them. That helps you study for the exam. Uh, the ones you might be interested in would be you know, fruit and maybe the core manual, uh, and you can purchase those at the web link there. And maybe Kevin will send that out later too, I'm not sure, but I could put it in the chat at the end. Um, and then we also give, uh, in addition to the live talks I give right now for certification, um, we also have online recertification courses. So. You could check these out as well. Uh, you can take these at any time and they're good for recertification in New York, but also nine other states, uh, depending on the subject. There is one on nozzle se- selection and calibration for vineyard canopy sprayers and a couple other different things that might be of interest to you. Um, and we produce the Cornell Crop and Pest Management Guidelines. So uh, you're probably familiar with those, you know, the grape 2022 is out and just a snapshot of some of the other ones that exist. So we sell those through our site, uh, but you know, the management information that's in there comes from professors. So we do the, uh, we check the pesticide information in there. All right, so I've talked enough about the program. Uh, before I jump into this, I have to say, you know, I have some trade names listed here. Uh, these are for example only, right? So 
I'm going to have some little snapshots of the label. Uh, and it's not, if the products aren't listed here, it's not because I, you know, don't endorse them. And the same thing, if there is a product here, that doesn't mean that I'm telling you this is the best thing to use. <laughs> uh, I just want to make sure that we understand that. And then of course, you know, the labels on here are just snapshots. So you've got to use the entire label when you're using a product. All right. So before we get into incompatibility, let's talk about why it happens. And it's because you're tank mixing, right? And we know that, uh, you know, in, there can be incompatibility with tank mixing, but there's also a lot of upsides to tank mixing. And I'm sure we're all aware of this, but I just want to kind of start and think about it that way. What are the benefits of tank mixing? So you're going to have more uh, timely applications. Um, you know, you often have a very narrow window of time where your pest is in the correct life stage and you've got the right weather conditions to use chemical controls. And it reduces expenses uh, like labor, time, and wear on your equipment. And it can also reduce soil compaction because you're just not going out as often, right? You're doing everything in, in one pass instead of having to go through your vineyard multiple times. Uh, and you can improve control by hitting a pest with multiple different products at the same time. And kind of conversely, you can also manage multiple pests in one application. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but mixing an herbicide or an insecticide or a pre or post emergent herbicide to manage multiple different species of weed. So with tank mixing, you know, the main things you want to make sure of is that none of the pesticide labels prohibit that mix. The timing's right for efficacy of each pesticide against the target pest. The application method used is appropriate for all pesticides in the mix. And then the final thing is you want to be sure the pesticides will that are mixed will not lead to incompatibility. So that's what we're gonna focus on today. And so first let's define what incompatibility is. And if you've you know, <laughs> had the bummer of dealing with it, I'm sure that you know full well what it is, but um, I'll just introduce it here. So it's, it occurs when you're mixing two or more pesticide products together and that negatively influences how the other pesticide products in the tank disperse mix and deliver. So basically, it's when one or more of your products are no longer effective because you mixed it with another product. And so there's two types of incompatibility. We have physical and chemical. Now the physical is pretty obvious. I mean, here's some pretty rough pictures to look at. <laughs> Basically what happens is the products fail to stay uniformly mixed. So you get like putties and paste separation into layers, precipitates, and these things can all damage your equipment. They can clog the screens and nozzles and be difficult to clean and dispose of. And, uh, they can also render the products ineffective uh, or just impossible to spray. You know, even if they would work, you've got a sludge. Um, and then these residues can hang out in your equipment uh, and are very hard to remove. Chemical incompatibility is a little more difficult to see and detect. Uh, sometimes the only indication that you have chemical in incompatibility is that, you know, you tank mix something, you applied a pesticide and you're just not seeing much result. And that might be the only thing that you see, but, but it could have been chemical incompatibility. But basically chemical incompatibility is when you have altered pesticide activity. And sometimes that'll actually lead to, you know, lack of efficacy. And like I said, usually it's not visible, but with both chemical and physical incompatibility, uh, you know, applications, so if you actually are applying something that had an incompatibility to it, those residues can injure the crop um, or you can have residues. So let's say with the physical incompatibility, you had that, you cleaned out your tank, but there's a little bit left, that residue can still injure your crop later on, right? And then it wastes time, money and product um, to have incompatibilities because you know, you're gonna to have to reapply a product probably um, that you had an incompatibility to start with. And uh, the other thing is that you, know, you may have to repeat applications or switch to different products. They talked about that a little bit. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's kind of weird to think about this, but I think of pesticides as, you know, they're basically environmental contamination if, if there's no benefit. So if there's a benefit, a pesticide's a tool. But uh, in this case, if you have incompatibility, now you just have something you, you have to get rid of, you know, that's an environmental contaminant. So obviously, for all these reasons, we want to avoid incompatibility. 
So how do you do it? Well, that's kind of what we're going to go over today. So we're going to start with ways to avoid incompatibility. And then, you know, if you've encountered it, kind of how do you resolve that? Um, so first, the first tip is really to uh, only mix a few things. Mixing fewer products in your tank reduces your chance of incompatibility. So let's start by thinking about what goes into your tank. And, you know, first we're going to talk about obviously pesticides themselves. So herbicides, fungicides, insecticides. And depending on a pesticide's formulation, you'll see varying responses to things like temperature, water, pH, and hardness, storage conditions, mixing with liquid carriers, and other products. So just to recap, and I, I'm sure you probably all know this, that you know, a single product's formulation includes both the active ingredient and the inert ingredients. So for example, with Roundup Pro here, the active ingredients glyphosate and the other ingredients are listed below. You can see that they make up 59% of this product and that's, uh, you know, the manufacturer's uh, secret. <laughs> but there are all those other ingredients. So the active ingredient is basically the thing that's going to prevent, destroy, repel, or mitigate your pests. That's the thing that's providing the pest control. And I like to think of the inert ingredient as uh, helping that active ingredient do that effectively. All right, so you know they can increase efficacy by increasing, let's say, penetration into a weed or improving the ease of application by preventing caking or foaming or improving applicator safety, uh, maybe protecting the active ingredient from environmental degradation, like in, you know, being exposed to sunlight, for instance. And I'm not going to list all of these here, but there's there's a lot of different inert ingredients, right? Anything from solvents to pH buffers to defoamers um, that just come with that product when you purchase it. So then if you go back to your idea of you know, tank mixing, um, two or more pesticide products when mixed together can be incompatible with each other uh, simply because formulations are so complex. And often it is those inert ingredients that pose the incompatibility problems. And then if you think about all the other things that go into your tank, I mean, adjuvants, fertilizers, micro, macronutrients, your carrier, you know, now you've got a situation where there's a lot of different things mixed together. And so all these substances can interact with one another and with the carrier, like your water or fertilizer temperature, and this can result in incompatibility. And so this is why it's always a good idea to minimize the number of products if you can get away with it. The next step to avoiding compatibility is reading the label. And I'm sure you hear this a lot, <laughs> but it really does help to read the label. So uh, product labels can tell you some of these things about compatibility. So they can tell you other products that have been tested for compatibility with your product, what not to mix, the order to mix products, um, you know, recommendations on tank mix agitation, sensitivities to temperature, warnings about the pH or water hardness with that product, uh, the recommended carrier volume, and whether you need a tank mix adjuvant. So for example, here's uh, JMS Stylet Oil. Now, I don't know if you all use this, but um, okay, Kevin shaking his head yes. <laughs> yeah, a colleague of mine said that it's used quite a lot in the Long Island area early season. So the label explicitly states not to mix this with many other products. And you know, I'm not going to go over all of them, but you'll see that there's quite a few products highlighted here that should not be used with JMS style oil. Uh, so this is really helpful to help you avoid incompatibility, but you've got to be aware that the label doesn't encompass everything. So you want to keep that in mind. While the label might list the products that are incompatible, you know, the manufacturers are trying to test things they think that that you'll be using, but they're not going to test all possible products. And some of them might come out after your product came out, right? So it's not gonna be on the label. There's just so many different mixes that are possible that manufacturers do not and cannot test all of it. So it's not always gonna be on the label. And the label also might warn you of conditions like let's say, you know, a pH issue or an issue with cold or water temperature, let's say. But it may not warn you because a lot of times the manufacturers assume that your pH and temperature are in a normal range. Um, so all of this to say, you know, where, where does this leave you? <laughs> and it leaves you in the situation where ultimately you're the one that's responsible for knowing if the products in your tank are compatible under your conditions. So 
The label can help you, but you can't count on the label to warn you about all the factors that could lead to incompatibility. So the next thing you can do to avoid incompatibility is uh, mix things in order while thinking about your carrier. And so one of the major reasons for incompatibility is that products are mixed out of order. So we'll go over mixing order for a little bit here. Um, it's really important when you start to read your label. So <laughs> I'm gonna show you kind of the generic mixing order here, but um, if the label says anything different, you have to follow the label. And the label might uh, give you some instructions ahead of time and you aren't sure what they mean, you should contact the manufacturer or a program like ours with questions before you start. Um, so what you'll do is you agitate uh, liquids. If you have liquids in containers, you wanna agitate those beforehand. So they're homogenous before you add them to the tank. And then you're gonna start agitation before you put any products into your tank. Oh, sorry, I skipped the step where you add the carrier. <laughs> and then after you start agitating, you're gonna start adding the products in order based on formulation. And so what is that order? So like I said, if it doesn't say anything on the label, then you're gonna follow this more generic order. So first you're gonna add water soluble bags and then dry formulations. So this includes water dispersible granules, wettable powders, dry flowable, soluble granules. And these formulations must be mixed with the water carrier with moderate agitation in order for them to dissolve. So that's really important. And if you're following this order, remember you'd already have the water agitating before you add these products. And you're gonna add the, these products one at a time and kind of wait for each one to disperse before you add the next one. And why do we say that? Well, you wanna make sure they're fully dissolved. Um, and you also, if you do it one at a time and incompatibility arises, then you've only you know, lost a couple products, right? So let's say you're adding three or four in the second one, you, you get an incompatibility issue then you're not gonna lose the next couple. <laughs> and uh, you wanna wait for each thing to dissolve. The rule of thumb is three to five minutes, but that varies a lot based on water temperature and other factors. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but before you go into step three, you wanna make sure everything's dissolved. And, and then what you do is you add the uh, AMS if you have that, and then you would add dry or solid anti-drift agents and then compatibility agents and anti-foamers. And just like with the uh, dry formulations, you wanna wait two to three minutes after you add each of those compatibility agents and anti-foamers before going to the next step. And with the defoamers and compatibility agents, you should definitely check the product labels. We have them as step five here, but these are ones that really can vary a lot. Uh, sometimes you're supposed to add them, you know, divide them up into multiple parts and add them throughout or mix at the end. Uh, so keep that in mind. So next in this generic order, you're gonna add all the liquid formulations that have dispersed active ingredients like suspension concentrates, SUSPO emulsions, emulsions of water, microcapsules, and flowables. And the picture on the left shows a suspension in water. Um, and then next, if you're planning to add emulsifiable concentrates or ECs to your mixture, you want to add the polymer-based drift retardants first in step seven, um, those liquid drift retardants help allow the EC polymer to absorb in water and avoid clumping. So you do that first, and then you would get to the remaining liquid ingredients uh, or formulations, I mean. So uh, that would include ECs, oil dispersions, and solutions or soluble liquids. And because ECs are oil or solvent-based products, they require more time to disperse throughout a solution. The picture here on the left shows an emulsion in water and they often appear milky. And then the last thing you would add are, or sorry, there's two more things. <laughs> so next you'd add the adjuvants. Um, so this includes crop oil concentrates, high surfactant oil concentrates, methylated seed oils, uh, spreaders and stickers, that kind of thing. And then the last thing you'd add is the micronutrients. So things like zinc or fertilizer, or copper acidifiers. So now that you know what order you wanna add uh, things to the tank and what order you should mix things in, why is it important to have a specific order? So I'm just gonna talk about you know, one reason. <laughs> so let's, if we kind of look at these different product formulations and I've, I've highlighted them in yellow, you've got dry formulations, then liquid formulations. And if you look at the um, suspensions, those are suspended in water with a thickener 
and it's usually like an oil or a surfactant and that stays on top of the tank. Okay. And so it kind of sits on the surface of your tank. And if you were to add the dry ingredients, let's say you go out of order and you add them after the liquid ingredients, they're going to hit that oil uh, or surfactant layer, layer, right? And what'll happen is the, the dry ingredients will hit that layer and they'll get coated and they'll just sink to the bottom. Uh, and they won't have the time to disperse in the water the way that they're supposed to. So that's an example of why you know, this order is the way it is and why dry ingredients have to be added first to be mixed into the water first. Um, and then once you have that you know, oil on the top with the um, other surfactants, it's fine <laughs> because it's happening second, right? So I hope that makes sense. Um, so once you've added things in order based on their formulation, you add the remaining water and then you would check uh, the pH and water hardness. Now it's always a good rule of thumb to check that uh, once you've mixed your tank, because at that time you could decide if you wanna add any water conditioners or pH adjusters if they're needed. But a lot of times you actually wanna do that earlier on in the process and some pH adjusters require you to add it early in. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about pH and water hardness in a second. So, we talked about how this was the generic order to follow only if the product label doesn't have some other instructions, right? If the label has its own mixing instructions, then you wanna follow the label first and foremost. So here's an example of that. Um, if you're familiar with Senstar, uh, this is labeled for grape, I think for mealybug and tumigal makers and some other things. And I heard from an extension associate uh, who works in the vegetable program actually, that some onion growers were using this to control onion thrips. And when they were mixing it in their tanks, they had some issues where it formed into a glob and then it had to be disposed of. And so we can't be sure exactly why this happened, but uh, I thought it was interesting. If you look at the Senstar label, you can see that they have their own mixing order and it doesn't follow the generic order that I showed you. And so if you look, I kind of added some steps here that would correspond to the generic order. So you can see like the oil dispersions are added, um, you know, third and it's kind of out of order. It would be step eight in the other order. So this is a really important reason to make sure you're following the specific orders on different products. What if you're using fertilizer as your carrier and not water? Well, incompatibility is just more likely to happen with fertilizer. Most pesticide products are designed to be used in water. Um, and so, you know, fertilizers have high salt content, uh, you know, it's basically a concentrated salt solution. And so there's just less water available. And because most products are designed to kind of disperse in water, uh, that can lead to more incompatibility issues. It's just harder to get those products into solution, basically. So what's the difference if you're using fertilizer? I've kind of added some more steps here to the order I just showed you with the water. And so you'll see that, you know, a jar test is recommended and we'll talk more about jar tests. I mean, I recommend these a lot, <laughs> but with fertilizer, I would say that you really should be doing it every time just because of that uh, increased possibility for incompatibility. And then agitation is true no matter what, but the agitation is really important for fertilizer um, just because, you know, it's harder to get things into solution. And then with fertilizer, you're, you, uh, tend to add more of the minimum volume than you would with water. So up to 75%. Uh, you also never wanna pre-mix crop protection products in an inductor. And then the last thing about fertilizer is that you wanna inspect the tank at the end for incompatibility. Again, you know it's just more likely to have incompatibility. So you wanna add that step in just as a double check before you apply something. And in terms of the order, to add products uh, based on their formulation, this isn't really different at all. Everything's in the same order, but one thing that is different is to create pre-slurries with these dry ingredients. Um, so instead of adding them directly to the fertilizer carrier, you're gonna create pre-slurries and then you add that to the tank. So here's an example of a pre-slurry. And basically these two pictures on the right uh, show an example of a dry herbicide being added directly to urea and ammonium nitrate or UAN. And on the top, you know, this happened without a pre-slurry. On the bottom, you see it's with a pre-slurry. So the pre-slurry made a big difference and 
Why are these still in layers at the bottom? Well, that's because it's, this is pre-agitation. Um, but you can tell the pre-slurry really helps. Oh, and I'm sorry, maybe I wasn't showing that slide. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so now that we've talked about the mixing order for both water and fertilizer carriers, let's discuss three main things you need to be aware of when you're mixing uh, your tank. And these will be carrier volume, wait time, and agitation. All right, so you wanna make sure you have the correct minimum volume in your tank before you add the first product. So just like if you're adding sugar to water, let's say in your tea or something, and you add a, a whole lot of sugar, um, after a while, it just doesn't dissolve anymore. And that's because there's not enough water there to take it up. Um, so if you don't have enough of the minimum water volume required when you're mixing pesticides, the same thing will happen. And things will be more likely to settle and clump. Um, so typically, you know, always follow the label, right? But typically the direction of the label state that the tank should be half full of water and three fourths full of fertilizer before you add your first product. And then we talked about this a little bit already, but you know, the correct wait time is really important too. So you wanna wait and check that each of your products have had enough time to mix before adding the next product. And you also wanna agitate your products in the tank before you add another product especially when the active ingredients do not disperse or suspend really quickly in water. You also wanna keep in mind that a product may appear to have dispersed when it's not completely dissolved yet. So it might look like it dissolved, but you always wanna mix a little bit beyond that time that it looks like it dissolved, just to be sure. Um, and also note that mixing time can be a lot slower when water is colder. And we'll get into this a little bit more. So you just wanna have an even longer wait time if you're using cold water. And then let's get into agitation. So you wanna agitate your tank mixtures moderately um, before and during spray applications. And what do I mean by moderate agitation? Well, you're gonna be able to see the top layer of the mixture moving when you look at the tank. If it's not moving, you're not agitating enough. Um, however, if it looks like boiling water, that's, that's too much agitation. And why is it so important to not over or under agitate? So I'll just tell you what happens if you over agitate products, um, what happens is that dry product formulations will foam and they'll remain on the top if, if there's too much agitation. And then they'll partially hydrate, swell, and sink. Um, and this can lead to uneven dispersion and clogged or stopped pumps. Emulsions and emulsifiable concentrates can actually get dislodged from surfactants if you're agitating too much. And this can lead to destabilization uh, of the tank mixture, clumping or cottage cheese. Um, and then anti-drift agents can actually shear uh, when you're over agitating, and this can lead to diminishing effectiveness over the course of application. So moderate agitation will help, right? <laughs> These things shouldn't happen if you're agitating moderately. It, it, you can also undermix your products. So if you just don't agitate enough, what you get is something that looks kind of like, you know, Italian salad dressing or oil-based paint if you leave it undisturbed. And so things start to settle out into layers. And if you let them settle for too long, it can actually be difficult or even impossible to resuspend them. And this can obstruct hoses and piping as well. Uh, so for liquid active ingredients, you know, before you add them, you also want to check the container or storage tank because that may have separated out into layers too. So you want to make sure that things are homogenous before you even put them in the tank. And here's another example of proper agitation. So I was talking to a, a plant path and microbiology professor, uh, and he was using Nordox 75WG. Um, and he, you know, the, there's a little piece in there that says agitate the mixture uh, to maintain uniform suspension. And he ran into problems because he just didn't have enough agitation. And the product settled at the bottom of the tank and remained as a sludge. And he wasn't aware that was happening. So he went ahead and applied it. And then, you know, that he saw that sludge. So he, he said that in his case, if he had just looked at that label or done a 10 to 15 minute jar test, that would have warned him about this problem before he applied the product. And we'll talk about jar tests in a second. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is accounting for your carrier. And what I'm really getting into is the properties of water that can mess things up when you're tank mixing. Uh, so these are things like temperature, pH, water hardness, and turbidity. 
So water temperature influences the rate at which your pesticide products are going to dissolve, disperse, emulsify, and flow. And more materials dissolve in warmer water. And the reason for this is basically that, you know, when water's warmer, the water molecules are moving around a lot more. So they're more likely to interact with the pesticide molecules. And you can kind of see like in the left figure, there's just less interactions happening because the water's not moving quickly enough. Um, so how cold is too cold? Well, unfortunately, there's just not enough research on this for me to give you an exact range. But what I can show you is that this is kind of out of Purdue. It's a summarized table here. And, and what they're showing is they mix herbicides with the different temperature water. And the X's show where the herbicide performance was reduced for at least some weed species. It doesn't mean it didn't work entirely, but it was reduced, right? And the checks show where products were effective. Uh, so you can see that, you know, between a range of about 72 and 102 degrees, things are looking pretty good. Uh, if your water starts to get colder than 72, you might start to run into problems. And so what do those problems look like? When the water is cold, dry and liquid flowable formulations take longer to disperse. And EC, crop oil, and seed oil formulations form gels, um, or they distribute unevenly. And then water-soluble packets may not dissolve as easily. So how do you avoid compatibility problems with cold water? Well, ideally you would use warmer water, <laughs> but if you're in a situation where your water source is, is cold and there's nothing you can do about it, uh, you wanna agitate more. You wanna wait longer for the products to dissolve. Uh, and you also wanna create pre-slurries in warm water before adding it to the tank. If you have access to warm water, that can help a lot. And remember, temperature is not always addressed on the label uh, because it's often assumed that you're working with water that's in the normal temperature range. So the next thing I want to talk about is pH. Um, and pH measures the degree to which a substance is acidic or basic, essentially. So here's the pH scale. Lemon juice would be at like a two. It's more acidic. Ammonia has a pH of 12, so it's more basic. And water should be neutral or around seven, but we'll see that's not always the case. So the pH of water varies regionally, seasonally, daily uh, by the source and even over time within the same source. And so regionally, it can vary a lot. So if you have like a rocky watershed uh, compared to a more uh, soil-filled stream, let's say, uh, the pH can vary a lot more. The soil kind of helps buffer pH. We're thinking about seasonally, uh, think about decompo decomposing plants in the fall, right? Those can lower your pH and snow melt in the spring can increase the pH. And then if we're talking about you know, daily fluctuations, if you have a lot of aquatic plants in your water source, those will, uh, as they're photosynthesizing, increase the pH of the water. And so around afternoon, you're gonna have high pH, but like in early morning, the pH would be lower. And then if you're thinking about you know, by source, um, surface waters from lakes and streams tend to shift in pH a lot more because there's sediments moving around and microorganisms and minerals in the stream. They're always kind of in flux, right? So if you have a well, it's going to be a little more stable. Um, but even with just, you know, the same source over and over, inputs can change the pH. So if I was having someone ask me about city water, um, I looked into this and, you know, city water should be pretty uh, stable, you'd think, right? But it can still fluctuate after treatments. Um, so all water sources can fluctuate. And then you want to think about man-made inputs. You know, there can be pollutants like acid rain, industrial pollution, or mining. Those can impact pH too. So just bottom line is don't assume that you know your pH. Uh, you want to test your water and you want to test it frequently because it can change. So most pesticides perform best when the pH is between about 4 and 6.5. Uh, Sulfonyl urea herbicides do better at 7 to 8. So they're kind of an exception. So what happens when the pH is out of range and you're trying to mix a pesticide into that carrier? Well, what happens is the pesticide product can fall out of solution and this can result in precipitates in your tank. Uh, also, you know, they can de degrade and decompose if the pH is out of range. And so then you have a loss of efficacy because your pesticide would have decomposed um, before you were able to apply it. And pesticides can also lose their electrical charge and so a lot of them are actually charged so that they can uh, penetrate into the plants. And so, you know, in a, a situation where pH is out of range, basically penetration to plants will be reduced. 
how do you make sure that the pH uh, is addressed properly in your tank mixing? So you wanna measure your pH several times throughout the season. And you know, I would suggest kind of testing a few weeks before you even start your spray regime. And this will give you time to evaluate your water and kind of know, you know which products will be optimal with your water source and, and have time to buy adjusters or adjuvants if you need them. And you can measure your pH using an electronic pH meter or pH dye strips. Um, and the labels may require you to check on pH at different stages of mixing, but you always wanna measure pH at the end of your mixing process. And you can add pH adjusters like water conditioners or adjuvants, but be careful. Um, you know, you wanna check the label to make sure that your product doesn't prohibit that and there's not a compatibility issue. Um, and, you know, acidifiers can lower the pH of the tank mixture too much and can cause some active ingredients to precipitate out of solution or volatilize. So you wanna keep in mind that, you know, the label uh, will give you more information about this. And also you might not always add them at the end. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. You might add them throughout the process. So check on that. You wanna be aware of product degradation. So I mentioned that products can degrade over time with pH that is out of range. So here's an example. This is uh, from Purdue Extension. And this is kind of like a rule of thumb they're showing with different pHs of your mixture. But if your pH of your mixture is 3.5 to about six, then you, it's recommended you apply that mixture within 12 to 24 hours. Uh, if it's six to seven, you wanna apply within one to two hours. And if it's over seven, it says immediately, I mean, I think you've got, you know, maybe 15 minutes, and, but yeah, you, as it gets higher, it gets worse, right? So, and pH isn't, um, it's on a different scale too. So, it, you know, it's kind of hard to figure this out, but as it gets higher, it gets a lot harder for a pesticide to not degrade quickly. So an active ingredient that, you know, could be ineffective after about 10 hours when the pH is at five, let's say, um, if the pH is all the way up at nine, now that active ingredient might only last two minutes. So just think about it that way. You know, it, it really does change if the pH changes. So now we're going to get into water hardness. Um, so this is when your hard water basically has a lot of positively charged uh, cations in it. And these are things like aluminum, iron, calcium, sodium, magnesium. These are just in hard water. Uh, and what happens is because those are positively charged, the negatively charged pesticide molecules actually attach to them instead of working on your uh, pest, right? So they just actually attach to the water. And then when you go to apply it, they're not really effective anymore. So they can precipitate out a solution like I talked about, and, and that reduces the likelihood of them entering the target pest. And um, weak acid herbicides, so these are things like glyphosate, dotine, 2,4-D, dicamba, um, these are a lot more susceptible to incompatibility in hard water. So on the right, I'm showing a map of the US and uh, you know, mineral concentration in water or water hardness. And this can vary across the US. Obviously in the West, it's worse than it is here, but you can see there's actually a little dot of red in, in New York. And so our state is pretty variable in terms of water hardness. So it's really important for you to uh, check up on, on water hardness with your water sources. And so I just wanna uh, illustrate what I was talking about before. So here, you know, you've got soft water, um, so there's no water hardness. And then on your right, you have hard water and a glyphosate mimic was added to both of these. And you can see on the right that, you know, the cloudiness indicates that the glyphosate mi mimic actually was binding with the uh, calcium and not actually with the water. So it's not in solution. So when you go to apply that, it's just not, the glyphosate's not there anymore because it's bound with the hard water. It won't be able to enter your plants. So how do you avoid water hardness? You wanna measure water hardness with water testing kits. And I show a couple down here. And you also wanna add water softeners to counter the effects of uh, calcium cation. So you know, if your water's out of range, you could use something like ammonium sulfate or AMS. Um, but you want to be careful because adding things like that AMS specifically to EC formulations can sometimes result in phytotoxicity. The final issue that I'm going to talk about with water is turbidity. So water turbidity is actually, 
you know, when you've got a lot of soil sediments in your water. So it looks muddy. Um, and this is kind of the opposite problem what we talked about earlier. So now the muddy particles in the water are actually negatively charged, and this will attract positively charged pesticides. Um, so in general, just don't mix pesticides with water that is visibly muddy or murky. And an example, again, is glyphosate. <laughs> so on the label of glyphosate, it says, your reduced results may occur if water containing soil is used, such as visibly muddy water or water from ponds and ditches that is not clear. So you want to avoid having water sources that are muddy. So how do you, you know, I kind of want to talk about buffers and conditioners for a second and just in general dealing with water quality issues. So remember the label, uh, you want to test your water, right? And so you know what you're dealing with. The label may not always tell you about the water temperature, hardness, or turbidity, but that doesn't mean that it won't pose an incompatibility problem. Uh, the manufacturer might just assume that you have, you know, kind of normal water conditions and not mention that on the label. If your water source is out of range, you can use conditioners and buffers like LI700, Buffer X, Spray Aid, Buffer Side, uh, but you want to be cautious. Pesticides, um, with radically different water requirements should not be mixed. So here's an example. I have LI700 here and it can help acidify spray water so that products like Imidan and Movento don't degrade or break down, but it should never be mixed with copper fungicides because those can cause phytotoxicity at low pH. So the copper fungicides do better with low pH and the LI700 you know, is acidifying. So Imidan and Movento do better at a high pH so they just shouldn't be put together because you can't get the best of both worlds uh, with both of them. You know what I mean? You're never gonna get your water to be right if you're trying to go for different conditions. All right, so the last thing I wanna talk about with avoiding incompatibility is conducting the jar test. I hope that you've heard of these. <laughs> so basically a jar, a jar test is where you can test mixes with you know, small amounts of your product and water um, before you, you actually mix in the larger mixture. And this is a great way to not lose product if you do have incompatibility issues. So you always wanna conduct a jar test if you're mixing products so that you haven't mixed before. You do not wanna experiment with an untested tank mix on the day of application. Um, you should also do periodic jar tests with products that you have mixed before. So even if you've mixed them before, the manufacturers can change the inert ingredients in their products and the products can also you know, degrade over time. Maybe they're a little less fresh. Um, also, some other factor might've changed for you that you're not aware of like pH or water hardness um, that, could that could impact compatibility. And so the jar test would actually catch this for you. And remember, there's no recovery often when, when you've mixed things in the tank. So the jar test can really help save you from losing product and having a mess to clean up. So what are you looking for when you do a jar test? Well, if you're looking for chemical incompatibility, we already talked about how this can really be indetectable, but it might give off heat, um, which is you know, an indication of some kind of chemical reaction. And also I, I just showed you that uh, example of glyphosate. So it might appear cloudy and that might be one way to flag this uh, chemical incompatibility. When you're doing a jar test and you're looking, you know, it's a lot easier to see physical incompatibility, right? So you're looking for things like layers forming, the mixture is not uniform, particles are floating or foaming on the surface, um, residues accumulating on the sides of the container, materials that are settling to the bottom really quickly, or larger particles that wouldn't fit through your screen or nozzles or filters. So when conducting the test, it's really important that you use the same water that you'll use in the tank because as we know, you know, the pH and hardness and other factors can make a huge difference. And labels for most products give instructions on how to conduct the jar tests. It usually involves measuring cups and glass or plastic containers. So you can do it with your own tools, but make sure to label those containers so that, you know, some, you or someone in your family isn't reusing them for something like canning. <laughs> that would be really bad. Um, you can also purchase commercial compatibility test kits. Uh, which contain all the supplies needed for a jar test. And I have a picture of that here. And to conduct the test, you just want to mix the proportionate amounts of carrier and pesticides that you would have if you were doing a full tank uh, application. So what you do is you would add each product uh, in the order that you would 
I normally add it in the tank and invert the container after you add each product and you want to wait at least 30 minutes. Um, if you if you have even more time, I'd recommend waiting more. Basically, ideally, you would wait as long as as you are going to store the mixture in the tank. Um, and then you really know <laughs> whether things are going to be compatible for that long period of time. And just kind of drive home this point of why you need to use enough water. Um, here we have two different mixtures. So this on the right, we see a mixture of liquid AMS water and pesticide products, Touchdown and Flexstar. And on the left, it's the same thing, but instead of using 25 milliliters of water, uh, they used 80 milliliters of water. And that was actually the correct proportion of water uh, that should have been used according to the label. So you can see, you know, on the right, it doesn't necessarily pass the jar test. It's close. There's a little bit of foaming and residues inside a container, but it's much closer than it would have been if you, if you didn't use enough water. So now we're going to talk about, you know, how to account for and resolve uh, incompatibility if, if you run into it. And I just want to start talking about there's a lot of different factors out there. Okay. So it's all connected and there's multiple things you have to look for, um, even with just one product. So I have an example with seven. Okay. Um, this is a fungicide label for use on fruit ornamentals. You probably are familiar with it. Uh, and the label instructions tell you to pre-mix in water before adding it to the tank. Uh, they also indicate that seven will degrade if it's mixed with strong bases. Um, so this is things like Bordeaux, lime sulfur. You want to avoid applications to wet foliage or within 48 hours of rain or humidity, because uh, that can lead to phytotoxicity. You don't want to use seven when uh, the water pH is above eight. And there's also a warning about water turbidity, right? So you don't wanna have overly turbid water. So this is just an example of, you know, <laughs> it's not like these things happen in isolation. You have to look at all of them at once and it's a lot. Uh, and that's why, you know, when you get a new product online you really wanna read that label over and over to make sure you know what all the issues could be before you even begin tank mixing. And I want to touch on phytotoxicity a little bit here because I've heard this is a concern and great. So, you know, keep in mind that phytotoxicity can be specific to specific crops and cultivars. So don't assume that things will be similar across cultivars. So, for example, pristine is phytotoxic to Concord, uh, but other varieties, you know, it might not cause injury, right? Um, you want to also be careful about tank residue. So you'll see that actually this pristine label says that you have to thoroughly rinse equipment before using it with other sprays. Now, this is always true, but you know, pristine even in very small amounts uh, because of that phytotoxicity issue, you know, can be really sensitive to, or your varieties can be really sensitive to it. So you want to be really careful. Here's another example where you have to watch which variety is listed and don't assume compatibility is consistent across all grapes. So you'll see that profit should not be applied to vinifera with a backpack sprayer and phosphoryl indicates that there could be variety sensitivity and the label tells you to uh, test for phytotoxicity before use. So you can always call the manufacturer um, and you can also do a test in a very small piece of your vineyard uh, so that you're not you know, spraying across the entire thing if you have concerns about phytotoxicity. Uh, here's another example. You know, This uh, product Rampart is a phosphoric acid product. It has very specific language about how frequently you can apply it and what the weather conditions should be. Uh, and this is, again, is a phytotoxicity issue. And so mixing this product with other products can exacerbate phytotoxicity. Uh, you do not want to apply Rampart foliarly within 20 days of applying copper. And the other thing I'll say about copper is under hot, moist conditions, plants increase their uptake. So that's why you see increased phytotoxicity under those conditions. And so for grape, you want know, to be really careful with copper um, and slow drying conditions, because you can see a lot of in injury, even to otherwise tolerant varieties like Concord. Um, okay, <laughs> the last thing I'll say is that you wanna be really careful with the biologicals too, okay? So uh, biological products, be, you know, if you mix them with things like fungicides or sanitizers, uh, they might actually kill the biological. So then it's definitely not gonna work, you know, if the biological is dead. Um, so Botector is labeled for the control of sour rot, gray mold, and other diseases. And 
Uh, oxidate two is labeled for, for sour rot as well, uh, but you can't use them together. If you look at the compatibility sections of each of these products, um, they mentioned that they can't be used together. And I think that's also true for Oxidate 5.0. So just be sure to check the label. And you wanna be careful where you apply it as well. Um, so for example, with Drexel Carbol 4L, uh, you know, this is labeled to control grape berry moths and cutworms among other things. It has a grape specific warning about not concentrating the spray on the bunch to avoid visible residues. And so these also can be found, the same kind of warnings on Carbol 4L and 7, some other products. So, you know, apparently there can be visible black spotting on the fruit if you don't follow these warnings. So even like where you apply it is important. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the kind of the final thing, which is let's say that you try to do everything right and you, you know, inevitably ran into incompatibility anyways. And so we're trying our best to avoid it, but, you know, Sometimes it's just a fluke. It happens to everybody um, now and again that you have a mistake like this and you have to know how to deal with it, right? So first thing you wanna do is contact a dealer or product manufacturer um, to talk about options. Worst case scenario, the manufacturer or dealer might tell you to dispose of the solution uh, you've created effectively and with as little risk as possible to you, the environment and your equipment. They might also direct you to add a conditioner to improve the situation. Um, so they might tell you to add something like water, more water, um, a compatibility agent, detergent, soap, non-ionic surfactant, or a pH adjuster. Uh, and that might resolve the compatibility issue, but that doesn't mean that the mixture will still work. Okay. So, uh, you want to ask the manufacturer and dealer about that because it might just resolve the issue. So it's easier to dispose of. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be spraying that, um, and then you wanna make sure, you know, is the problem isolated to your spray tank, okay? Because if it isn't, you might have to actually dismantle your sprayer to remove all the residue so that you're not having this issue later on. Um, I think that's all that I have for today. Here are some resources, and I don't know, Kevin, if you wanna share these in some other way. <laughs> it's kind of hard to look at the links here, but yeah, there's a couple of good things out of Purdue on water quality and compatibility and mixing. And then there's my email. Um, I am actually the newest member of the program. So we've got two of the people that have been working in pesticide safety uh, for you know over 25 years or so. So if I don't know the answer, they do. Um, or we can send you to folks that do know the answer. Well, I wanna thank Mary for joining us. Really appreciate it. If something comes up and you wanna you know, call me, you have my information or uh, you can send me an email and ask a question. And, if I don't know the answer, I can get to the bottom of it. I've called manufacturers on your behalf quite a lot. And, you know, I, yeah, I definitely keep things private and just say, I have a question about this, you know, and, and they, they tend to listen to me because I'm part of the, you know, safety education program for the state. So I, sometimes it helps to have a little more of that title in there to get people to actually get back to you. And I, I've had a couple times where I've had a manufacturer tell me, oh, wow, that's, that's not written clearly on the label, you know, and we've gotten the labels changed that way. So it, there's a lot of questions out there and I'm happy to help with anything, um, even if it takes me a while to find the answer. <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Yeah.